This afternoon I may proclaim to you God's word as the church summarizes it and confesses it in Lord's Day 15 concerning the suffering of Christ. I'll read that, Lord's Day 15, where we confess. What do you confess when you say that he suffered during all the time he lived on earth, but especially at the end? Christ bore in body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. Thus by his suffering, as the only atoning sacrifice, he has redeemed our body and soul from everlasting damnation and obtained for us the grace of God, righteousness, and eternal life. Why did he suffer under Pontius Pilate as judge? Though innocent, Christ was condemned by an earthly judge, and so he freed us from the severe judgment of God that was to fall on us. Does it have a special meaning that Christ was crucified and did not die in a different way? Yes, thereby I am assured that he took upon himself the curse which lay on me, for a crucified one was cursed by God. After the sermon, we'll respond together by singing from Psalm 111. Psalm 111, stanzas 1, 2, and 5 after the sermon. Love, brothers and sisters, in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the Apostles' Creed, we confess both Christ's birth and his death. He was born of the Virgin Mary, and he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. So the creed takes us from Christ's birth to his death, from Christmas to Easter. But that doesn't mean, of course, that Christ's life in between those events was of little significance. You have to keep in mind the Apostles' Creed is a summary, a brief summary of our faith. That's why the Catechism then expands on it here in Lord's Days 15 and 16. And in Lord's Day 15, we confess the doctrine concerning the suffering of Christ. And this doctrine, congregation, is of great comfort to us. For we confess here that his suffering, which includes his lifelong suffering, is the only atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's the theme for the sermon. Christ's suffering is our atoning sacrifice. We'll see that by his atoning sacrifice, Christ redeemed our entire life from everlasting damnation. He freed us from God's judgment and removed God's curse from us. The word atonement, that means to be at one with, as in reconciling two parties. And I always tell my catechism students an easy way to memorize that is to pronounce the word as if it means at one you just separate the syllables, at-one-ment. Atonement, it means to make things right again. Reconciling two parties so that they are one again. To make satisfaction or, or to make amends for a wrong so that that can happen. Now this meaning is displayed in the sacrifices that took place on the Day of Atonement as described in Leviticus 16. 
The Lord instructed Moses that Aaron was to use two goats for the atonement sacrifice. And both of these goats point to the Lord Jesus Christ. The one goat was chosen by lot to be a sin offering for the people. Its blood was to be taken into the most holy place and sprinkled on the atonement cover, on the mercy seat of the ark. And this signified that God's wrath was turned away from his people. In the New Testament, this is called propitiation. Propitiation means that through Christ's sacrifice, God's wrath has been placated, it has been appeased, it has been turned away from us. The second goat also points to Christ. Aaron had to lay both of his hands on the head of that goat. He had to confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put those sins symbolically on the head of that goat. Then that goat was led out into the wilderness and released. This was the scapegoat. And it represented what we call in the New Testament expiation, or the cleansing, the canceling of sin. And together, these two goats point to the atoning sacrifice of Christ. By his atoning sacrifice, Christ has satisfied, has placated God's wrath and canceled our sins. He has propitiated God's wrath and expiated our sins. And both of these aspects of the atonement are absolutely necessary. In spite of the many voices to the contrary, God is a God of wrath. His wrath is real. It's as real as his love, and it cannot be denied. Paul writes in Ephesians 2 that apart from Christ, we are children of wrath. From Galatians 3, we learn, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Usually when we think of why Christ came into the world... The first thing we think of is that he came to die for our sins. And of course that's true. He came to die for the sins of God's people, for God's chosen. But the only way those sins could be atoned for was for Christ to placate the wrath of God. God is a a holy God. And our sin and our rebellion offends him. It's an attack on his holiness. And so his, his righteous wrath rests on sin. And you and I deserve that wrath. But because Christ Jesus is our mediator, God's wrath rests on him instead. And often when we think of Christ's suffering and of God's wrath, our minds immediately go to Good Friday. And what happened to Christ, right? His agony in Gethsemane on the day before, his physical abuse that he received at the hands of Herod's soldiers and Pilate's soldiers, and then finally his crucifixion. But Christ did not become our mediator congregation on Good Friday. He was our mediator already from the time he was conceived and born. And that's why we confess that not only his death, but also his life has accomplished something. Christ not only died as a man to save us, he lived as a man to save us. And that's why we confess here in Lord's Day 15, Christ bore the wrath of God against sin during all the time that he lived on earth. His entire life of suffering has meaning for believers. He was despised and rejected, 
a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. He was stricken by God, smitten and afflicted. Right? He carried the burden of God's wrath from the moment of his conception because he came as mediator, as the atoning sacrifice. He came as the scapegoat for his people. God made him to be sin who knew no sin. And he laid on him the iniquity of us all. And Christ felt this during the entire time that he was on earth. Because as soon as he took on human flesh, he was numbered with the transgressors. So his position on earth was a position of one who stands accused. God reckoned him to be a godless sinner precisely because he carried our sins. As a young toddler and a young boy, he would not not have understood this completely. For as we read in the last verse of Luke chapter 2, our Lord Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. But as he grew older, his understanding of his task deepened. But his suffering then also increased. And his suffering was so much more severe because he was perfect and innocent and his heart was pure. He felt temptation to the tenth degree. We give in to temptation long before we get there. Before he came to earth, he lived in a place of perfect love. He knew what a perfect relationship with God is like. And yet he experienced the reality of God's love against him. And he had to suffer the rejection of his people. They rejected him and his message. He came to save them, but they didn't want him. And at the end of his life, God poured his eternal wrath onto his son. And in the end, the wrath of his father killed him. So you see, for the Lord Jesus, life on earth was a death sentence. He knew what was coming, and he couldn't escape it, but he still came willingly. He offered to come to earth. He offers to stand in our place, to suffer for us, and to be our atoning sacrifice. Our mediator got what we deserved. He bore the full brunt of God's eternal wrath. There were no limits on Christ's suffering. None. Because he had to endure the eternal wrath of God against the sin of the whole world. The whole human race. And you and I are part of that human race, aren't we? The cause of Christ's suffering is my sin. I am the cause of his stripes. Because of me, he was a man of sorrows. Because of me, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We are personally responsible for Christ's suffering. Can you admit that? Can you say with David, I was conceived and born in sin? Can you admit that you're a born sinner? Right? It's easy to point the finger at somebody else, especially right, at the world. If you read the news and you read about all the atrocities that are happening in the world and all the, the, the abuse and the war and the bloodshed that's going on, we might think we're pretty good. And it's easy to minimize our own sin. But your sin, no less than anyone else's sin, 
nailed Christ to the cross. Your sins drove the spikes through his hands and his feet. Does the cost of your sin horrify you? And are you really aware of the heinousness of sin and the holiness of God? The Israelites, they weren't even allowed to come close to the mountain when God was speaking to them. And Aaron had to go through a rigorous cleansing and sacrificial ceremony before he was allowed to enter the Holy, the holy of Holies, first for himself and his family. And then, then he could only do that once a year. But on Calvary, we see what sin really cost. What our sin cost. And that should bring us to our knees, brothers and sisters. What happened on Calvary is the, the ultimate testimony of the depth of Christ's love for you and for me. And the mercy and the grace of our God. Calvary should have been our destiny. But Christ hung there instead. So we can only stand in awe of what God has done for us in Christ. And there's a warning here for us. If God did not spare his own son, will he spare anyone who rejects or despises his son? All the suffering of Christ, which he endured all the time he lived on earth, and especially on Calvary, does us no good if we do not believe in Jesus Christ. The suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he endured his whole life, can only be a blessing to us if we look on him in true faith. And what a blessing it is. Because Christ suffered from conception to death, we have immeasurable comfort. Because whenever we suffer, and everybody does, this life is a life of suffering. Whenever we suffer, we can be assured that Christ already suffered for us. You might ask, well, how does that help us? Well, that means this. Our suffering is not the suffering of God's wrath against us. That doesn't mean that there are no consequences for sin. There often are. Right, Sin has consequences. But as God's children, you can be 100% assured that God's wrath has been placated. It has been appeased. It has been propitiated. Christ has completely paid off our debt. He has atoned for our guilt. He has satisfied God's justice. He has satisfied God's wrath. And so when you come to your Father in faith, when you humble yourself before Him in true repentance, you can be fully assured that Christ's atoning sacrifice covers all of your suffering, all of your sins, all of your pain, all of your distress, from conception to death, from the cradle to the grave. And so we can... See then how important it is to believe that Christ suffered through his entire life. And how comforting that is for us. Because from the time he was conceived and born, he perfectly obeyed his heavenly father. He did everything right. He acted that way already in the womb of his mother. 
And he continued to do so after his birth, as a little boy, as a toddler, as a young man, and as an adult. And then by faith in him, his perfect obedience becomes ours. His lifelong obedience covers our lifelong struggle with sin. And his lifelong perfection covers our lifelong imperfections. His lifelong atoning sacrifice covers our lives from the cradle to the grave. He lived our life perfectly. And so his sacrifice also then touches every aspect of our lives, every minute of our lives. Well, beloved congregation, what do we say to this? There's only one response, isn't there? We can only praise God and love Him and live for Him. For Christ's lifelong atoning sacrifice obtained for us the grace of God and it freed us from everlasting damnation. And that brings us to the next question in this Lord's Day. It might seem kind of puzzling that Pontius Pilate's name is found in the Apostles' Creed. Why his name? Well, for one thing, it tells us that the suffering and crucifixion of Christ was a real historical event. There are still people who maintain that the events surrounding Christ's death and resurrection didn't really happen. But the, curse, the, the church confesses these things based on real, redemptive, historical events. Our faith is not based on fiction. More importantly, however is the question concerning the relationship between Pilate's human historical actions and God's divine redemptive actions. Pilate was the highest authority in Judah at that time, and as such the only earthly judge who could condemn someone to death. And Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, they didn't have this authority, so they brought Jesus to Pilate. And that sounds quite logical, but there's more to it than that. Heilberg Catechism places a direct connection between Christ's condemnation by an earthly judge and our escape from God's divine judgment. We confess that since Christ was condemned by Pilate, we will be acquitted by God. So we need to take note of two things. First, Pilate was the legal authority, and therefore the sentence that he pronounced on Christ was an official sentence. A sentence pronounced by a God-ordained authority. Pilate was God's servant administering justice, right? Romans 13, there is no authority except from God. So Jesus even said that to Pilate himself. You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. And that's key to our confession here in the Apostles' Creed. It is God who sanctions the judgment of Pilate. Pilate's judgment is God's judgment. Now, that seems to fly in the face of logic because Pilate's verdict was unjust. Several times he even declared Jesus to be innocent, not guilty. And his dishonesty and, and, and corruption only emphasizes the innocence of Christ. But then we have to take note of the second thing, and that is Pilate only saw Jesus as a man. An innocent man 
But God looked upon Christ as our mediator who had taken upon himself all the sins of the whole human race. And God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. And sin is lawlessness. As the Apostle John writes, and lawless people need to be condemned. And that's why Christ deserved to die, because the justice of God had to be satisfied. So according to God's law and God's justice, Jesus was guilty. And of course, Pilate's judgment and his verdict, that remains Pilate's responsibility. But his judgment was God's judgment. And so the sentence passed on Christ was a just sentence, passed on him by an official court of law, so that we can be assured that we will never have to fear the wrath of God, the judgment of God. And again, congregation, we must stand in awe of God's mercy and his grace. God's righteous judgment had to be satisfied. We should have been standing there on the judgment seat to receive the severe judgment of God. But Christ stood there in our place. And he became our substitute, the atoning sacrifice, freeing us from God's judgment. And that brings us to the third question in this Lord's Day about the manner of Christ's death, namely his crucifixion. The cross of Christ's congregation is, is for us a, a celebration of victory and triumph. And there's a great irony in that. Because in the ancient world, the cross was viewed with loathing and horror. When Paul preached Christ crucified, the gospel became a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. The Jews expected a political Messiah. And the Greeks and Romans, they they only crucified the lowest of the lowest criminals and slaves. So Christians in those days were, were ridiculed for believing in a dead criminal. A despised criminal. But God in heaven also regarded a crucified person in this manner, yet even even worse. The Apostle Paul refers to this in Galatians 3, that Christ became a curse for us because cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. And Paul is referencing here the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 21, where we read that as well. Anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. Now these verses... Are, are come right after, well, the verses prior to this statement refer to a son who is disobedient to his parents, who doesn't honor his parents. And Old Testament parents had to take a son like that to the elders and say, this son is disobedient, and the man of the town had to stone him to death. You must purge the evil from among you. All Israel will hear of it and be afraid. And after being stoned to death... The body could be hung on a tree or on a cross. But in Israel, such a body was not allowed to hang overnight. You must not desecrate the land the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance, they were instructed. And notice that God's curse is in the context of rebelling against his commandments. So rebelling against God. And rebellious sons weren't the only ones for whom stoning was reserved and hanging. It was reserved for all who deliberately despised their relationship with God. So we see that God's curse is in the context of a broken relationship with God. It's the opposite of blessing. 
God's blessing comes to us in grace and love. God's blessing is his fatherly care, his his infinite compassion. His blessing means that we live in a relationship of love with him, with our Father in heaven, a relationship that lasts into eternity. But God's curse is entirely the opposite. It means our relationship with God is broken, that he regards us as enemies, that his wrath rests on us, and we only deserve to die. It means that we're on our own. God withdraws his love from us forever. And that's what Jesus endured. He suffered the rejection and the curse of God. God withdrew his love from him. And that's why he was crucified. The cross was reserved for the worst, the lowest criminals, the worst rebels. And again, there's irony in there because Christ was never a rebel. He obeyed his father perfectly from cradle to the grave. He never once thought of not fulfilling his task as the Messiah. And he drank the cup of God's wrath to its very dregs. And he suffered the wrath of God through his entire life and endured the curse of God for you and for me. And so by his atoning sacrifice, I am assured that he shouldered the curse which I deserve. And he took upon himself that curse and the stoning and the hanging that I deserve because of my rebellion against God. Brothers and sisters, it would be horrible, wouldn't it, if we had to live with the thought that every time we're suffering that God's curse is coming down on us. As if Christ had perhaps not done quite enough and God wants us to fill up whatever is left of his his wrath and, and anger against us by our suffering. But that's not how it is. That would make our suffering unbearable. Instead, Christ shouldered the curse of God. And our suffering can even become then a a blessing for us because God will turn to our good whatever adversity he sends to us in this life of tears. The author of Hebrews writes about this in Hebrews chapter 12, that God disciplines us as a father when we are in Christ It's not his wrath, but it's his loving discipline that comes on us. And why does he do that? The author writes there that we may share in his holiness. That's what God's goal is when he brings suffering into our life, that we may share in his holiness. And because Christ has removed the curse, I can be sanctified and purified through my suffering. And in my suffering to learn to live closer to my God. Well, again, how should we respond to God's grace? How should we respond to the glorious message of the gospel? Well, brothers and sisters, boys and girls, young people of the church, let's not just leave it to words. Christ said to his followers, take up your cross and follow me. Taking up your cross means dedicating your whole life to Christ. It means total commitment. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, says Jesus. So let's follow our Savior. Let's commit our lives to him 
Not just today, but every day. Commit our lives to the one who is fully committed to his sheep. Nothing was too much for him. He suffered it all for us. And he did it so that we might receive the grace of God, righteousness, and eternal life. We have every reason to praise and love our God. Amen.